Welcome to the Field of Church podcast. Our church inhales and exhales the gospel every Sunday and is excited to bring our messages to you here. Thank you for joining us and we hope God moves in your life as you listen into this feed. So we're going to go ahead and jump right into 1 Timothy. Get your Bible open if you got it. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 8 in just a second. But, but the way this is going to work as we're going through First and Second Timothy is it's a little bit like a TV show. Like if, you, if you ever watched that older show called Lost, like every time it started, it said previously on Lost, and you have to go through like what was happening because you can't understand the episode until you know the history. Well, First Timothy is just like that. You, you don't understand today unless you go back to last week. So I got to do it previously on First Timothy for you. So last week, we were looking at some false teachers that were invading the church. They were actually elders in the church, and what they were doing is they were twisting the law. Now, when he was talking about the law, he was referring to, you think, Ten Commandments, right? The law of Moses is found in the Torah in the Old Testament. It was Ten Commandments plus all the other rules and regulations the Jews were supposed to obey. And so today, we're going to look at, last week we saw what they did wrong, how they twisted it with myths and genealogies. This week, though, Paul's going to tell us how the law was supposed to work. Now, I want to forewarn you before we jump in in verse 8, there's going to be some heavy stuff right off the bat, but he needs to tell us how the law works. So with that in mind, let's read it, beginning 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. It says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I told you it was going to get heavy quick, and some of you right now are so caught up in that list, you're going, Jason, it sounds like you're about to go old-timey Southern Baptist hellfire and brimstone on us right now, and I don't know if I'm ready for it. If if you're feeling that, don't worry. It's it's way too early for you to breathe out fire quite yet. I, I don't think that's Paul's point. Paul's point is just to show us that the law has a function. The Old Testament law, he's saying, is applicable to New Testament Christians. Which I think leads to the next question, how? How do we interpret these Old Testament laws? I mean, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to put all of them into practice? Because there's some weird ones out there. You know, don't get tattoos, uh, don't drink blood, don't eat pork, don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. Are we supposed to obey these rules? Which, by the way, if your last name is Paredes and you're one of my children, that the whole thing about tattoos applies to you. I I want you to know that. But, but for the rest of you, like, seriously, what do we do with these laws about animal sacrifice and about diet and about mold and skin diseases? And do, do we have to follow all this? Is that how we're holy? No. And yes. So let me tell you what Paul is saying. No, absolutely not. You are not made holy by trying to obey all the rules and regulations. This is exactly what he said the false teachers were teaching. It's not that. It's really saying the principle of the law still has to work. He's saying there is a purpose of the law for New Testament Christian. And here's the purpose. To show a bunch of sinners just how sinful they really are. That's what the law is intended to do. He said it back in verse 9. He said, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. In other words, the law exists to show a bunch of screw-ups like you and me just how screwed up we really are. It's interesting what he does here. You probably didn't notice it, but he's actually going through the Ten Commandments, at least commands five through nine, and showing what it looks like to break every single one of these commandments. So the fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother. And then if you look at the end of verse nine, it says, as an example, those who strike 
their fathers and mothers. In other words, those who break the fifth commandment. Well, what's the sixth commandment? You shall not murder. And then what's the next word on there? For murderers, he's referring to. What's the seventh commandment? You shall not commit adultery. Then you start in verse 10, and it says the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. So those who break the seventh commandment. Well, what's the eighth commandment? The eighth commandment is that we shouldn't steal. And if you look at the list, the next word is enslavers. Now, maybe you don't see how that's theft, but what this is is somebody stealing a human life and selling it for profit. He's calling out people who break the eighth commandment. And what's the ninth commandment? You shall not give false testimony. And then the next two words are liars and perjurers. He's just going one by one and showing what it looks like to break the law of God, the commands of God. And what he's trying to do is show us how we break it. We are liars. We are sexually immoral. We are disobedient. We are unholy. We are profane. He's trying to show us that the law exists to, to prove to us that we need a savior. Now, maybe you're going, well, but I, Jason, I didn't break any of those other ones. Well, he gives that big old bucket at the end of verse 10. He says, or whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. He just says, basically, any way that you screw up against the will of God, the law has shown you that you've messed up. That word sound, when it says sound doctrine, is an interesting word in Greek. It's hygienuse. It's where the word hygienic comes from. Technically, it's saying that, that he's saying these, these false prophets have done away with hygienic and healthy doctrine and, ha, and instead have accepted sickly, contagious doctrine. In other words, the sinful aspect of it is contagious and you need sound or hygienic doctrine to keep you safe. Maybe you can think about it this way. Like, obviously, we're right in the middle of a pandemic. It's very easy for you to understand something that's contagious. So think about the, the coronavirus. So my, my daughter, she's five years old. She calls it the canola virus. So, so think about the canola virus for a second. How does this work? Right? So if you have somebody who's got the coronavirus and somebody who's healthy and the two of them get together, what's going to happen? Will the healthy person make the guy with coronavirus healthy or with the dude with coronavirus make the healthy person sick? I mean, you know how this works, right? It's contagious, so sickness spreads, not health. This is really what he's talking about. He's saying you got to have hygienic practices because sin spreads. This is why even today in this world, we have the practices we do. We have to be hygienic as it pertains to the coronavirus. We've got to social distance. We've got to have a mask and gloves and wash our hands. And this is even why we're not gathered together right now as the church in person, even though Governor Abbott said that some of these restraints have been lifted because it's still such a pervasive virus that can spread so easily. We're trying to be hygienic. Paul is saying you've got to recognize sin is contagious and you have to have hygienic practices, doctrine that is sound and healthy to protect against it. He's saying the law is intended to prove to you that you have that virus called sin. Now, here's, here's, the, here's the deal. Like, if you were to go to get a test done to see if you have the COVID-19 and, and it comes back after four or five days and it says, positive, you have COVID-19. If you were to ignore that test and go out in public, that's punishable by law. You are spreading it. What Paul is saying is if you look at the law, it will prove to you that you have this virus called sin. And if you act like you don't have it, that is a punishable offense. What Paul is saying is we have to let the law do to us what it is intended to do to us and point to the sin and the brokenness inside of us. Which is why I believe right now at the beginning of the service, we need to take a moment to let the law do what only the law can do and point out our sin. In a moment, we're going to take about a minute. Well, we're going we're gonna to be still before God. Now, I'm going to ask you, if you're willing to, to get on your knees right there in your living room or wherever you are, maybe even all the way on your face, and to say, God, show me. Show me through the law where I've, I've broken it. Show me my sin. 
God, when have I lied? When, when have I been immoral? God, when have I been disobedient, not honored my father and my mother? When have I been profane? When, when have I done something, God, that is against your will? Show it to me now. Because we need the law to do what the law can do before we're ever ready for the gospels. And then after we have about a moment of being still, then we're going to sing a song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And listen to some of these lyrics. It says, Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. We need to sing these as a declaration that we know our sin and our guilt because we won't ever celebrate the gospel until we do. So right now, I want you to get down on your knees. If you're willing to do so, at least bow your head. If you're willing to get all the way down your face, do so. And take this next minute and let God point out your sin. Let the law do its work in you. Then we'll continue to worship. Go ahead and bow your heads. I I hope your heart was encouraged by the, the gravity with which you need the grace of King Jesus. I pray God did a work on you because if he did, you're ready to move on to this next portion when we turn back to Paul. One of the things I love about the Apostle Paul, he didn't just sell the stuff. I mean, he bought it himself. He, he didn't just call other people sinners. He knew him, he himself was a sinner. He knew he needed the gospel more than anybody else. And that's exactly what you get in verses 12 through 17. You see Paul give his testimony and he ends with a shout of praise because he's so overwhelmed by the gospel of Jesus. Let's keep on reading, see what it says. First Timothy chapter one, beginning in verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I love the way he finishes just shouting, to God be glory forever and ever, honor and glory and power and dominion. He's so overwhelmed by the gospel of Jesus. Did you see how he got there? He didn't make it to verse 17, which is called the doxology, which means a song of praise. He didn't make it there by thinking he was good. He made it there because he was shocked that he received grace. When you go back to to verse 12, he says, almost as if he's just overwhelmed by this in disbelief because he judged me faithful, it says, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, He's basically going, God, I don't know what you're smoking, man, but you chose me and I can't believe it. Think about that for a moment. The apostle Paul, the greatest missionary of all time, is shocked that God chose him. I think this is really important because sometimes when we look at these heroes like Paul or James or John or somebody else, Peter in the Bible, we think they're like these perfect saints that always do right. But no, nothing can be further than the truth. Paul knew this dude was screwed up. He knew he was messed up from top to bottom. And he's saying, I cannot believe God would show me this kind of grace. He knew he was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was trying, he made it his life goal to stamp out Christianity and erase even the memory of Jesus fighting against the savior of the world. He knew how broken he was, which is why in the beginning of verse 12, all he could say is, I thank him. I thank God that he would do that for me. 
He is so overwhelmed by the grace given to him. In verse 14, I love what it says here. It says, for the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That word overflowed is a beautiful word in Greek. It's actually two words put together. It's hooper and pleonazo. Now, pleonazo means to be poured out. And hooper is where you get the word hyper from. So literally it's saying, his grace has been hyper poured out on me. It's this image of Paul standing there in this unstoppable fountain of grace, just drenching him from top to bottom, overwhelming him with this hyper flow of grace that inundates him. He's saying, I cannot believe I would be shown so much grace. That's the goodness of my king. In fact, in this passage, I think he details out for us beautifully exactly what the gospel is. He talks about two words that are so important. He talks about grace and mercy. In verse 14, that that hyper-flowing grace, he says, that I received. And then in verse 16, this patient mercy that I've been shown. Now, sometimes I think we confuse grace and mercy. We think they're interchangeable, but really, especially in this passage, they're not. There are nuances to the way that Paul is using these words. In fact, in the way he's using it here, grace in this context is God giving us what we do not deserve. But mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. So maybe that's confusing. Let me, let me go ahead and illustrate that for you. Think about this way. Let's start with mercy. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. And if you haven't heard it yet, what we deserve is condemnation, eternal punishment, because we've offended a holy and infinitely pure God. So mercy would be a king saying, I'm not going to give my subject, my servant, who's messed up and rebelled against me, the punishment he deserves. So imagine there's a servant and he's embezzled against his king. And now he's standing before the king and the the king is towering over me. And that servant's going, please, please don't punish me. Don't throw me in jail. Have mercy. And if that king were to say, I forgive that debt, he is not giving that servant what that servant deserves. That's the mercy God has shown us, not giving us the reward of our sin, what we deserve. But grace is different. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Grace, think about it like the stimulus check, right? Many of you got a stimulus check from the government. You didn't earn that. That was gracefully given to you. That's grace, something given to you that you haven't earned or deserve. Paul is saying, I have this hyper-flowing grace upon me that God would give me a persecutor and blasphemer and opponent of the church the right to be a missionary, the right to be a steward of the gospel, the right to be called a child of God. And he's saying, I cannot believe that I would be given all this. Such is the grace of the king and the mercy of the king. But don't miss where Paul's saying it comes from. Paul's not saying it came from me because I'm such a good boy. No, he says it comes from Jesus. That's what verse 15 is talking about. Right here in this verse, you get the entire gospel in one verse. Verse 15 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. It says right here, Christ Jesus, God in the flesh, came into the world for one purpose, to save sinners. Not to save the righteous, not to save the big givers, not to save those who always do right and always do good, not not to save the good people, to save sinners. And that should give you and I a whole lot of hope. I I love how Jesus himself, he said this when when he was confronted by the Pharisees in Luke chapter five, he's he's eating at Matthew, the tax collector's house, and and they're throwing his big old party and his other tax collectors and sinners, and the Pharisees go, Jesus, how could you hang out with those sinners? And Jesus says, guys, listen, the, the healthy don't need a doctor, the sick do. I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance. I came to call sinners to repentance. Jesus Christ came for sinners, which is why Paul would say, I, 
I fall into that camp. I am the foremost. I am the worst sinner of all. Now think about that. Here you have the Apostle Paul. And he's saying, you see that extortionist over there? I'm worse than he is. You see that scoundrel over there? I'm worse than he is. You see that axe murderer over there? I'm worse than he is. And you go, come on, Paul, really? Paul said, you don't understand. I persecuted the most gentle person to ever walk this planet. I persecuted Jesus, the savior of the world. What's lower than that? And he says, if, if Jesus could save me, trust me, he can save anyone. It's exactly what verse 16 was talking about. Look back at that verse. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. He said, I, I want to give you an example. If you're hurting, if you're sinful, if you're broken, take heart. If God can save me, he can save anyone. He can save you. You can have the promise of eternal life. And I think it would do well for you and I, those of us who are confessed and professed believers in Jesus Christ, to say the same thing. Because I think sometimes what happens is we think, you know, I'm not all that bad. I grew up in church. I'm a pretty good person. I'm not like that dude over there. So yeah, sure, he saved me. But I don't know if he could save that person. But when you realize it takes just as much grace to save you as it does the worst of worst, then you realize if he can save you, he can save anybody. And I think right now it would do as well, especially after that first part of the service where we said, law, break my heart, show me my sin. Now we're saying, I cannot believe I'd be shown grace. I think it would do as well to stop right now and remember the magnitude of the gospel so that we too can get to where Paul got in verse 17 and say, glory to God, honor and praise and glory to the King of kings and Lord of lords. I think one of the best ways we can do that is by taking the Lord's Supper right now. And we don't normally take the Lord's Supper in the middle of the service, but I think we need to do this right now so we can celebrate the magnitude, the lavishness of God's grace and mercy toward us. Now, this is only for those of you who are professed believers in Jesus because the Lord's Supper is a symbol of our faith. But if you are a believer, I wanna encourage you in a moment, we're gonna sing a song and we're gonna prepare our hearts. After that song, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper so one of you can go get the supplies when we start this next song, and then all of you are gonna prepare your heart for it. Because you're gonna have a bread and you're gonna have juice, and through these, you're gonna remember what Christ has done. In the bread, you're gonna remember the broken body of Christ, and you're gonna say, God, my sin did that. It was my sin that held him there. But then when you get the cup, you're gonna remember the grace of Jesus to wash away all your sins, and you're gonna say, how could God love a sinner like me? And you're gonna remember the goodness of God's grace. So here's what I want you to do. As we sing this song, and one of you go get it ready, the rest of you worship the Lord, sing these as a praise, prepare your heart, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together in just a moment. Now's the time, get ready for it. So as we finish up this morning, we're gonna have to deal with what we've gone through this service. We've gone through a time of recognizing our own sin and shame. We've gone through a time of celebrating the gospel of Jesus. But there's a problem, once you hear the gospel, you have to respond to it. You have a decision to make every time the gospel enters into your head and your heart. This is exactly what Paul was talking about in the last three verses of this passage. So let's finish up the chapter in verses 18 through 20 of 1 Timothy, chapter one. It says this. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul, in these last three verses, is basically setting up a choice that has to be made, a, a divergent pathway. We can take the pathway of Timothy, 
or we can take the pathway of Hymenaeus and Alexander. We can take the pathway to life or the pathway to destruction, the right way or the wrong way. Paul is basically saying, choose, church. Now, you got to know both of these pathways have difficulty to them. There's, there's not like one that's super easy and the other one is super hard. If you want to take the pathway of Timothy, it's a fight. There's strain to it. He says, uh, you've been given prophecies about you. And those prophecies were the calling toward ministry that he had. And he says, I want you to wage the good warfare. Or the NIV says, fight the good fight. In other words, it's going to be a battle. It's going to be difficult. And he knew that Timothy was timid and insecure like we talked about last week. And he's saying, I need you to confront the false teaching of these elders. You're going to have to fight. You're not going to want to do it, but you've got to fight the good fight, Timothy. And, and that may sound like that's the harder pathway. Like it would just be easier to, to be with Hymenaeus and Alexander, you know, like whatever. Maybe they're not teaching good doctrine, but at least they don't have to fight the fight Timothy does. But I want to suggest to you that the pathway of Hymenaeus and Alexander is a much harder pathway. So these two guys more than likely were elders in the church who were the ones propagating the false teaching. And that false teaching, as we learned last week, was that they were saying that you had to have some kind of secret hidden knowledge and you had to obey these extra rules and regulations that they dictated for you to be righteous. So basically, they were throwing out the gospel. You know, you're not saved by faith in Christ. You're saved by this obedience to this secret knowledge and these special rules that we have for you. And Paul says, I'm not going to stand for it in the church. And so he says something pretty crazy. He says, so I, I took Hymenaeus and Alexander and I handed them over to Satan, which you're probably going, what in the world does that mean? Why would Paul hand anybody over to Satan? And so what that basically means is, most likely, it meant he would, they were kicked out of the church. So in their worldview, the church was the realm of God and that, the safety net. And then outside the church, that was the realm of Satan. And he's saying, I'm going to kick you out of the church so that you have to deal with what it feels like to be led by Satan himself and all the difficulty and struggle and, and horrible nature it is to be under the rule of a man like Satan. Handed him over to Satan kick them out of the church. Now, I gotta be honest with you. Today, it's really not that big of a deal to be kicked out of a church. This kind of church discipline doesn't work nearly as neatly today. Like if, if, if I were to kick you out of Fielder, which by the way, I'm not gonna do it, but if I were to kick you out of Fielder Church, you know what you would do? You would go down the street to another church or better yet right now, you got like 80 different options online you could watch. Well, forget you, man, I'll find a different church. It's not terribly effective today. But back then, man, if you were kicked out of a church, there was only one church in Ephesus. If you were kicked out of it, you lost your complete social network. You lost all the positive influences in your life. You lost the support system that you had to live by. And so it was overwhelming to be cast out of the church, which maybe will make you wonder, then why in the world did Paul do that? I mean, why, why is he so mean? Why, why doesn't he show grace to them? Well, listen, Paul didn't kick them out of the church to be mean to them. He did it so they would learn a lesson. Look back at verse 20. He says, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. In other words, the whole point of kicking them out of the church was not to leave them out, but so they could learn, so they could be restored, to learn not to blaspheme, to speak lies about God, to distort the gospel. Paul's doing this ultimately so they could be restored, but make no mistake about it, that pathway of restoration was hard. They were going to be drugged through the trenches, drugged through the mud and mire and clay so that they could finally come to their senses and come back to the truth of the gospel. And I think basically what Paul is saying is, guys, you can do this the easy way or the hard way. You can decide to recognize right now that God is on his throne. You can't mess with God. Or you can go out to the realm of Satan. You can experience all that hardship and pain and suffering. And then you'll finally come back to the same conclusion. You can't mess with God. God's in control. So how do you want to do this, guys? The easy way or the hard way? And, and I firmly believe that's the exact same decision that God is giving you and I to make. 
Every morning we wake up, we got to decide, am I going to do this the easy way or the hard way? Listen, I, I, I know I don't get to see your faces right now. I wish I could. I can't see you in, in wherever you are watching this. I don't get to interact with you. In fact, there are thousands and thousands of new people tuning in that I've never even met before. But I know every single one of you watching this, and I'm talking to you, I know three things about you. One, I know that you are a sinner and you have fallen short of the glory of God. I don't have to be a prophet. I don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that because the scriptures say every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there's the second thing I know about you. I know that you are not good enough or strong enough to overcome your sin. I know that no matter how many good deeds you do, no matter how hard you try to change your ways, no matter how you try to make up for the wrong you've done, you'll never be able to do it. You're not strong enough. But I know a third thing about you. I know that you can be saved because Jesus Christ came to save sinners like you and me. And I believe there are some of you who are watching this right now and Jesus himself is pursuing you. The spirit of God is pursuing you right now. You can feel it. You're watching this and you're going, man, is it hot in here? What's going on? Like, why, why do I feel weird and tingly and what, what's going on? I, I feel like I should do something right now. Let me tell you what's happening. The spirit is pursuing you. But he's saying, guy, girl, are, are you gonna do this the easy way or the hard way? Because right now you can choose. You can raise your white flag and say, you know what, I, I am a sinner and I need a savior. And you can give in to Christ right now or you can keep fighting it and fighting it and fighting it and make him drag you through all these places before you'll finally come to your senses and realize how much you need Jesus. You can do it the easy way or the hard way. Can I just be a friend right now and suggest you do it the easy way? Can I just suggest that right now you go ahead and confess your sin before God and say, if Christ Jesus saves sinners and I'm a sinner, I need his salvation. Take over my life. You're calling upon the name of the Lord and you can be saved. And I believe you need to take that step right now. Cry out to him and he'll hear you. Right now, literally, right now. Like maybe even pause it and pray and say, God, I'm ready for you to work in my life. And once you've done that, then I wanna encourage you to take another step. And this is gonna be a hard step for you. I'm gonna encourage you to reach out to us and let us know that you are ready to place your faith in Christ Jesus and find salvation in him. Here's how you do that. You can get your computer, you can go to fielder.org slash next step, or you can get your phone out and you can text the word next step to 94253, just how you see it here on the screen. And when you text that number, what's gonna happen is that I or one of the pastors is gonna reach out to you, pray with you, communicate with you, see how we can support you, send you a little starter kit so you can begin your faith. And here's exactly what's gonna happen. You're gonna make every excuse and the reason not to do it. No, nah, I don't need to do that. Or I'm not sure, I gotta wait for a while, maybe later, and you're not gonna take the step. It's a fight, but don't lose this battle right now. Take that step of faith, fight the good fight. Get victory right now, don't make it harder on yourself. He's ready to save you because Christ saves sinners. I pray you'll take that step right now. But I also know there are a lot of you watching this and you've taken that faith step already. You've professed your faith in Christ. Many of you have been baptized and you were a part of the church. But that doesn't mean you're off the hook. Every morning you wake up, you have a decision to make. Am I gonna choose the easy way or the hard way today? Am I gonna live for his glory? Am I gonna fulfill the calling that God has given me and serve him or am I gonna be distracted? Am I gonna be tempted? Am I going to be isolated? Because make no mistake about it, the enemy is trying to sift you. The enemy is trying to get you. And he's using, he's using this pandemic to try to make you feel isolated, make you feel alone. Listen, don't fall prey to that. You need the community of God right now more than ever before. 
And maybe you're going, well, how in the world do I get the community? We're still in a pandemic. The church didn't even open for normal services right now. This is what I love about the doors God has opened up. You can be in biblical community right now through technology. Listen, we are still launching discipleship groups, literally brand new groups starting completely virtual. We have our community groups right now and Bible studies that are all happening virtually right now. You can jump in right now. You just got to let us know. If you have any questions about it, you can send an email to questions at filler.org and we'll connect with you and make sure you get plugged in. Same thing for your students. Same thing for your children. We have online ministries going where we're connecting with them, helping them grow and mature in their faith. Don't let yourself get isolated. Don't let yourself get distracted and tempted. You got to fight the good fight. One of the best ways you can do this is by hosting what we call watch parties. By the next Sunday when we gather together, you're not just gonna watch this alone with your family or by yourself. I wanna encourage you, if you're willing to do so, to invite a few other people, maybe in your neighborhood, maybe in your community group. Now, we're still gonna walk according to the, the CDC guidelines and social distancing and being careful, but now we've been given permission to get together in small spaces. And so I wanna encourage you to have a watch party in your own home. To, to put it maybe on a TV outside or if you can social distance inside, invite some people over and make it a party. Get some Christian community. Be encouraged. That's how you fight the fight together. Listen, if you're willing to host one of these watch parties in your home, here's what I'd like to ask you to do. You can go to the exact same place as before. You can, you can text the word next step to 94253, the exact same form, or you can go to fielder.org slash next step and you're gonna see one of the options is to host a, a, a watch party. Please let us know if you're willing to do so. We're gonna send you some information, some guidelines on how you can do that to make it effective. But we would love to start building together Christian community in any way that we possibly can. But fight the good fight. Make sure that in these moments, you use this pandemic to grow in your faith, not to walk away. Listen, guys, I'm gonna pray over you guys in a moment and I'm gonna send you out. And I'm sending you out to fight the fight. Church isn't over. You are the church. And I want to ask you to rise up. And I want to ask you to be the church in new, innovative ways. Guys, thank you so much for being a part of this worship service. Let me pray over you guys. And I'll send you out. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have allowed us to be saved because of the good work of Christ Jesus when we least deserved it. Thank you, God, that you have given us a host of Christians, other brothers and sisters in Christ, though we can't be with all of them right now. God, thank you that you're starting to reopen the door where we can be together. Thank you you've created virtual means for us to be together so that we can fight the good fight hand in hand. God, give us victory. Give us power. Use us for your glory. Help us walk into our calling. God, we love you, and it's you we serve. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Fielder Church, you are sent.